Hi there, I'm Winston and welcome to The State of It. I'm sitting here with my dad, David. Hi Winnie, I'm sitting here with my son, Winston. There we go, proof from the man himself. Um, dad is the author of three books, a fourth is soon to come out, and you can find out more about him on his website, www.davidmurrin.co.uk. By the way, the spelling of Murrin is M-U-R-R-I-N, a lot of people get it wrong, so that's a bit of a trap there, watch out for that. How are you feeling today, Dad? Are you feeling ready for this? Always ready for my son's questions. Oh, lovely, lovely. Okay, we'll get straight to it on the first one. Dr. Li Men Yang, a Chinese virologist who has fled China, claims she has evidence the pandemic originated from a Chinese biolab. Multiple prominent virologists, such as Christine Anderson from Scripps Research and Carl Bergstrom from the University of Washington, called the papers supporting her claims unscientific. Where do you think the virus came from? Well, obviously, there seems to be a bifurcation of those in the scientific community that would like to make the argument that it's zoonotic and those that wish to make the argument that it came from a laboratory. I um, think the argument that it came from a laboratory is the strongest and most apparent, and that really is all about the adaptation of the virus to the human system and the way that uh, it was obviously adapted and had been exposed to, to, to human DNA so that once it entered into the human system, its rate of mutation is relatively slow, although it's an RNA virus, and over time, the more people infected, the more permutations to it. Initially, it was adapted to spread swiftly. That strongly suggests, um, and from the sources I've spoken to, that this is a laboratory product. And then the question really comes um, to the fore as to whether or not it was an intentional release or whether or not it was an accidental release that came from a Chinese weapons laboratory, and then the CCP then used it to their advantage to ensure that it spread widely across the world and and uh, did the economic damage that we're all now living with. What do you think of the counter-arguments to the fact or to the thought that it came from a laboratory? Well, it's very interesting because if you look at the response, human response to aggressive actions whether it's an individual to another individual or whether it's a nation to a nation. Normal people all seek to avoid conflict. We naturally shy away from conflict. And that's where people with aggressive characteristics and nations with aggressive tendencies really have an advantage in the gray space. That is, they commit acts of aggression and the other person on the other side turns their back against it and says, well, it's not really as bad as it looks and if I ignore it, it'll go away. And so in that regard, I view the people that come from the camp that uh, it's zoonotic fit into that category because the implications that it comes from a weapons laboratory is significant. We know that biological weapons development has been taking place, not just in China, but in the West. It's a natural product of understanding the DNA process because it means that the first area where biological weapons started to develop was essentially the development of DNA-focused weapons, ones that would kill one race of humans and not others, which happens to be a weapon of total war because whoever's left standing obviously made the weapon. Uh, if you happen to be Han Chinese and you're the only nation still alive, you found a way of killing all the other races of the human gene pool. So that was when it started. And so there's no doubt these laboratories exist and there's no doubt that um, DNA research integrating differential biological weapons exists. And China definitely has that capability. 
There's another form of weapon, which um, um, a, a development of a weapon, which I've, I've uh, read a lot about since the outbreak of the pandemic, which is the ability to split a um, virus's ability to be lethal. So you find one that's highly transmissible and then you increase its lethality. So they both have very similar DNA processes. But one is slightly more lethal than the other. And the first you can use to inoculate a population, the second you use to attack a population. So with a twin virus like that, you can inoculate your own population and release a more virulent form on the outside world. And then you'd see the outside world suffer from the pandemic and your nation would carry on unmolested from the virus. And strange enough, that's exactly what the symptoms are on the outside. And the other thing that's of great concern is that this virus was present in Italy back in September in sewage samples. And it wasn't killing people in the way that the Wuhan strain did when it came out of Wuhan. So there's an awful lot of evidence to me that suggests that A, China was involved in a major trade war and losing against America. It was losing ground. So there was a reason why it would be appropriate for them to want to act this way. And and the second is that none of the evidence we see makes sense. So I don't believe the zoonotic argument has any credence. So are you saying that there are two different strains, one outside of China and one inside of China? Well, let's look at the evidence. So let's let's look at what we see or what we saw. We saw strains of this virus appear in sewage samples in Italy in September. And yet people weren't dying from it, as they should have done if it was present. We saw the Chinese hospitals saturated with a flu epidemic prior to December. And um, studies from the state showed Chinese hospitals, car parks packed and flu numbers going through the roof to the point where the Chinese stopped reporting it. So there's obviously something that happened prior to that date. And then we then see a strain that came out of Wuhan. And Wuhan's an interesting city to, for it to come out of. It came out of a city that has more international connections than probably any other city in terms of employees that travelled from Wuhan to work overseas. So if that city was infected prior to Chinese New Year, you knew there would be transmission to the outside world. So that seems rather interesting and coincidental. And then the second virus appears out of Wuhan, hits um, places like Italy with high um, Chinese worker loads out of Wuhan and literally inundates the system. And that one has a higher lethality rate. And the issue around it is when it saturates your health system, you can't give people care. And we're only being to understand the steroidal protective mechanisms we can use against some of the way it responds and it has been killing people. So we've learned a lot about it in a year. But nonetheless, none of this makes sense. There is no case in history where a pandemic appears in a benign form and then becomes non-benign and then starts to kill people. And the differential effects in China... How has China managed to continue its economy moving forwards when the Western world is dogged by an ongoing wave of infection? Could it not be argued that the virus simply mutated in the time it took to get from China to Italy and China's dealt well with the pandemic because the government is able to exert quite, you know, quite a lot of control on its population, whereas in Western governments, the same control measures have been met with resistance, just like in America? Well, I think that one of the things about this particular virus is it's persistent able to you know persist on surfaces and highly um infective and as we found our lockdown processes haven't really worked you could argue because they're not draconian enough 
Um, but I'm not convinced of that because I think it would reappear. It would have pockets and then pop up again. So I, it doesn't make sense in a population the size of China's. They're having so few numbers. Now, we could assume they'll lie if they have it. But I think in a, I, I think there's a huge question of why it hasn't spread inside China. There are other Asian countries around China that have had similar levels of um lockdown protocols and discipline and you know far more social order than you see in the west and they've had all sorts of problems with second waves why hasn't china it's a question i think it should be on our lips moving on to some management of the pandemic according to the pew research center when the british public was asked if they thought covid was managed well 54 percent said no however in other countries like Denmark, Canada and Germany, 70% of the public believe the government had handled the pandemic well. Do you personally think the government up to this point has handled the pandemic effectively? I would have to say that it could have been handled far more effectively. So the first thing that we really knew is that this wasn't um, a virus that affected all age groups. The mortality rate took place in the above 60s, increasing the 70s and increasing the above 80s. So age and mortality correlated. And our failure in the UK was not to secure our old people fast enough. And even to this time now, the question mark is, have we put enough resource into securing that sector of society and isolating them effectively? The idea that you then lock down the population below 60 um, and you lock whole economies down to prevent the flow of it, I think is incorrect. We knew a number of things, I think, that was fairly obvious. It spreads like wildfire. It's persistent. And we suffered you know, infections from February onwards. And every other pandemic has seen multiple waves. So we should have assumed that we would have a first wave. And if we recover from the first wave, we would get a second wave, especially coming into winter this year, because that's when respiratory infections gain the most tractions and coronaviruses have the most effect from the November, December, January period. It always should have been realized that we were going to get a second wave. And in many ways, I think we haven't made the shift that this is a long-term protracted conflict. This isn't just get to the vaccine, it's safe, get rid of way one, it's safe. We've got a much bigger problem, which I'm going to highlight. And so I think we should have adopted a protect the above 60s. I think the regional tiering is a good idea, but it should be for age groups. So tier one is above 80, tier two is above 70, tier three above 60. And if it's really bad, tier four above 50, let the under 50s get out and keep operating the economy. And that's a fundamental error and fundamental mistake, because once you realize this is a protracted struggle, you can't afford just a short lockdown and think it's going to work. We have to shift away from that. We've got to find a way to keep our economies going to survive what I think is a multi-year problem. And I'll come on to the reasons why. It's interesting that in World War One, everyone thought the war would end by Christmas and everyone rushed to join up because they didn't want to miss out. There is a human phenomenon that when we're met with a wave of entropy or a challenge, that it's going to be short-lived. And there is an adjustment when the first strategies fail to deliver an outcome. 
I think we wanted to adopt and need to adopt a wartime strategy on the basis that it wasn't an accidental release or there was a huge amount of question mark over how it came onto our shores. And that meant that we should have shifted far faster to mobilising to a wartime mode, not relying on hope, only wave one or the vaccine would save us, but on the reality and the planning that it may take a number of years for the reasons I'm about to illuminate. It was never going to be one wave ever because of the way previous pandemics have operated and the seasonality and the time to bring a vaccine into operation. The next real problem that we've got is that this is an RNA virus and it mutates. Obviously, a lot has been made about the variant which spreads more effectively. I think there's some interesting questions around that and whether or not they're correct through their back data analysis over a Christmas period when people's behaviours are excessively social, I wonder about. But nonetheless, it's raised the issue that the virus creates mutations and variants. And the more people it infects, the more variants will be. At the moment, 1% of the human population has been infected by it. That means we have 99% of our population that could be infected and the variants that come with it. And some of them are not going to use S-spikes. That it will invalidate all sorts of vaccines. So we're in a race to vaccinate the, the Petri dish of the virus are unpopulate are on immune sections of society. And let's just say Britain is successful. Let's take a little model. Britain is successful. And the one thing it has been really good at is we've created the Oxford vaccine. We have effectively led the world in that process. The Pfizer vaccine, I think, is a breakthrough for antiviral, you know, control that's way bigger than the traditional vaccines. So there's some good news for the long term. But nonetheless, Britain has been there. We ordered sufficient amounts. We passed it in terms of our regulatory requirements faster than the EU and, and the US, showing huge adaptation. We've done a great job. Our mistake is thinking that that is the end of the war. My concern is that we're in a race to get to our population immunity. And as the virus spreads and becomes more mobile, it starts to mutate. So we might find more mutations taking place within Britain as the spread blossoms. But let's just say we're lucky. We somehow keep a lid on it. We now face another problem is that we vaccinated first. Other countries have not. The pandemic will be spreading in other areas. It may not be Europe because they're not far behind us, but it might be Africa or it might be Latin America. And those areas become petri dishes for new variations. New variation comes along and it doesn't have an S-bike. It has a P-spike. And we have to do it all over again. So I don't think the world's going to return to a normalcy. We we face maybe for three years a process of constant threat of the virus's evolution into new versions. And so the process is where why we can track and trace new variants, the process where we can make new vaccines quickly and distribute them quickly, and the process whereby we have a much higher level of ICU capacity needs to be put in place. And I think there's an awful lot made about Save the NHS. I'd like to say that the workers on the front line do an amazing job, but the structure is there to save the country, to support the country's economic and daily operation. And it was a real inversion to save the NHS when the NHS is there to save its people. And its real weakness has been shown by its inability to create more critical care beds. From the first wave to this process, we have you know, very few more. And, you know, we could have called on personnel that volunteered who had retired. We could have done so many more adaptive things, but the bureaucracy, which is the NHS, has prevented it from really taking place. And I think we need to make that wartime adaption and use it to actually make the NHS an efficient, streamlined process. 
And so what, there will be benefits from this, but, but at the moment, the biggest obstacle is the NHS, in my opinion, and the way it's administered rather than how the people operate on the front line, because they must be exhausted by now, affected, infected themselves. They've been at this for a long time. And it reminds me of, you know, the first army you send to war when you go to war. And the, you know, a good example would be the old contemptibles, the BF, that was out there in 1914 pushing back on the German invasion. And by 1915, it disappeared but it was replaced by a completely new army. And our NHS workers represent a little bit of the BEF's old sort of architecture. We need to be faster to find those replacements. And the other area Britain has completely failed upon is the track and trace methodology. We've sort of spent billions on it. It hasn't worked. We were offered a solution from Taiwan back in March, which we ignored. And we need a track and trace process because when new variants appear, we've got to track and trace those ones and clamp it down faster than it gets out. So I think this idea that the vaccine is going to save us is very dangerous. We should be putting every other protocol possible into operation and view this as a long-term struggle to get our economy back to where it was when other countries don't. And that's the great advantage of a mobile system is going to have, a vibrant system. You talked a little bit there about the NHS and the administration. So what would you say to the leadership of the NHS right now? I'd say that if we were in a war, we would have lost. Um, and uh, the army the army on the ground, the workers in the um, intensive care units, would have been as brave as any army we fielded and bold and resilient. And they had been let down by their generals. This idea that you remove you know large committees and create adaptation and at the moment we've got a really rigid structure and that has to go we need far fewer administrators we need people with medical experience at the top of the nhs and we need to reform it into an adaptable model and we can't wait and i think this second wave is going to show how badly the nhs failed us because very soon they're going to be inundated and this argument that they didn't have enough people for the nightingale hospitals and they couldn't staff it I don't think holds water because from wave one, they should have been planning for wave two. They've had months to do it and they haven't. And they've you know, not accepted volunteers by the by the thousands who've tried to get in through the system and couldn't, as the Telegraph today showed. So there's a an awful lot, I think, that the administrators of the NHS have. And I have to say this, that the health secretary, um, Hancock, has an awful lot to answer for too. I think this um, emotional response of crying when the vaccine was out or showing tears is, is really lovely, but I'd prefer a hardened general that, you know, put hope at the backbone and, and reality at the forefront to realise it was just but a series of steps that we had to get through to hope that we would, to not hope, but to manage this, this, this ongoing war. It's not a battle, it's a war. Talking about Hancock there, I know his crying on TV has created some different views and you were saying you're not against his crying on tv but you prefer a hardened general do you think he's not a hardened man or he's not he's not up to the challenge if i was brutal he's a boy in man's shoes and um i, I have no problem with showing emotional responses um but this the idea the vaccine would save us that worries me because my view is the vaccine is important part on the steps to it but it's not the guarantee of us coming out of it and returning to normality because there are more challenges ahead. And and I'm really concerned that, you know, the SAGE group and whatever little acronym of people gather together, they've demonstrated to be remarkably linear and left-brained in the way they think. For example, our lockdown protocols, why it has to be everyone, why cannot it be age-sensitive, is an incredible failure. 
uh, because they don't understand that we need an economy to support our system. And this is ultimately eroding the strength of our economy and therefore the strength of our medical response. And they're myopic in the way they think. And, I, and I'm concerned about that. There's no real balance of grand strategy taking place that really should. You know, if you were, if you put out all the best gamers around who are playing Risk or any other game, they'd quickly work out that in a protracted pandemic, you had to find a way to keep your economy going. And therefore, you had to understand what parts of your society you could keep operating and which ones you couldn't. If this was a pandemic that affected everyone equally, then I could understand this response. But it's very, very age dependent. And we have to be far more adaptive, far more strategic in the way we think and really put hope in the bin and, you know, make make realistic plans for a prolonged conflict. I, I hear what you're saying about the NHS administration, but we haven't experienced something on this scale since the Spanish flu. I think even the best plans can sometimes be destroyed when you're hit with the actuality of the situation. Uh, but what would you say to the NHS workers on the front lines right now? Briefly? So, so I, 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 re- I think they the individually, they are have done an incredible job for our country. It's, a, it's just like the BEF, Seven divisions facing 70 German divisions in 1914. Those guys fought like tigers, displayed incredible courage and service. And yes, they did slow down the Germans um, and ultimately prevented them from reaching Paris. But they were dismembered and destroyed within a year of engagement. And I think the NHS administration is failing to realise that our workers are the same. You cannot work them and over, overwork them, expose them to infection, all of those processes and keep using them without replacements. And we should be thinking about how they got replacements in, how they produce more ICU beds, more people to operate them, because that threshold would enable the country then to operate a different strategy of how you reach herd immunity. And this whole idea of saving the NHS is wrong. I mean, the NHS is there to save save the nation. And we have to turn around that slogan because I think it fails from us to, it's preventing us from looking at a sacred cow. And the NHS, we have long realized, is not an efficient organization. It needs to be streamlined. The top of the administrative curve needs to be taken off and it needs to be find a new way to operate. And this is our opportunity, not just to make it more effective for the pandemic, but to reform it and restructure it so that it works for our country and gives far more value for money in preventative medicine and the processes that are around how you keep your population healthy and productive. Well, I think that's it for now. Thank you for listening. But we have part two of COVID coming up, so... If you're interested, tune into that next. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Winnie. Always a joy.